It's time for the Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And we're here to talk about the third episode of HBO's Westworld. Called The Stray. The Stray. Do you think that has more than one meaning? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, obviously they show us a stray robot, but do you think there's any other... Whenever I think of a stray, I think of a stray dog. So it makes me think of that other scene where Dolores keeps saw that like wolf dog kind of thing wandering around. Oh. And also a little bit makes me think of Man in Black, like if he's a stray. Yeah. When I think of stray too, another phrase I think of is a stray bullet. Okay. When you think of a stray bullet, do you think it's like you don't know where it came from necessarily or no, it was an unintended... Don't. Target. Yeah, right. Hit something it wasn't supposed to. Hit something it wasn't supposed to. Intrigue, huh? Yeah. If you remember from the last episode, we were using a character by character format and we're going to start with Bernie. Bernie is having, I would call this a bad day at work. He starts out with a clandestine meeting with Dolores. These have been happening regularly for, for a while. We can probably assume that there have been some number of weeks between this episode in the first episode because she mentioned something about a number of cleanings and things that she's undergone. And Yes, he seems to always check if anyone else has gone through her diagnostics or in any way has interacted with her. So he's checking up on her and wants her to read a passage from Alice in Wonderland, which she quickly decodes as the, uh, having a thematic relevance to other things that he has shown her related to change. Do you think he has her read the books or they read the books together or he just has has her read passages like he did in this. I would say passages because these are short meetings. Mm, that's true. Well, for a moment, I was really wondering if there was some sort of father figure need he had to have these like bedtime story type conversations like you would Well, with it a does child. come out in this scene, you get the inkling that he has a child that has died. Well, remember in the first episode, I think it was, he has the photograph of the little boy mm -hmm. and we were wondering if that was a son that he had lost because he seemed very wistful while looking at it. It really makes me wonder if his motivation to be involved with AI in general is having to do with his son and the fact that he lost him. Dolores also wonders if their relationship is son related because she actually asks about his son. Bernie stops real quick and is like, why did you ask me about my son? She quickly rattles off a programming type response where she's like, you know, asking a personal question is a good way to ingratiate yourself an ingratiating to an, scheme. the other person, right? It seemed like Bernie was disappointed with that answer because it seemed to me that he really wanted her to say, well, because I know you're sad about losing your son or something that would have some amount of empathy or a real concern for him. He seemed a little deflated when she said, oh, it's just this ingratiation scheme I have programmed in me. I assume he's watching and asking these questions to have a moment like that. It seems to me that he asked that question to try to probe if anything is organically growing in there. I feel like all of these conversations are kind of summed up with that sentiment. Is there anything that she is thinking, feeling, or doing that wasn't programmed inside of her. And he's doing so at his own peril. In the next scene with Elsie, there's a few things that happen. One thing that she does do related to what you're saying 
is she basically has noticed that he keeps having meetings, diagnostic sessions with certain units. He is quick to say, why don't you go do your own job? Because she's in the middle of investigating the, the milk bandit scene over and over again. I was fascinated by this scene when he was being told by Elsie that the milk bandit went around and shot some of the hosts, but not all of them. Some of them he let go. And specifically, the six that he shot were ones that he had had a previous narrative with, and that person had done him wrong in some way or had shot him. And so these seem to be like retribution killings. Fascinating. Do you think that Bernie wants to cover up the fact that any one of the hosts could be organically having these moments where they are having something like revenge feelings that wouldn't have been programmed in? Do you think he wants to keep that discovery for himself? Or do you think he's afraid that if there's any amount of understanding that that could happen, that they'll basically like pull the plug on everybody? It seems like he's, his agenda is hard to uncover. And it seems like it could be a couple things at once, or maybe it's just very complicated. With what he's doing with Dolores, we now know that he is kind of running his own mini experiment. Giving her this information that I guess is not program coded, but is organically picked up, like him having her read a book that's putting ideas in her mind without programming those ideas in her mind. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, do you think he's looking to see if those ideas stick? Mm, no, I think it's, I think you were onto something a minute ago when you were saying trying to provoke a more organic response, like you were saying about asking about his kid, with, but not having it come from an ingratiating scheme, but from some other more unexplainable More motivation. natural, right? More natural. Yeah, natural. And just kind of like, I don't know why I did that. I just did that. That kind of response. You I, know? Yeah, I felt like if Dolores had said, it seemed like the right thing to say, or I felt like I should say that to you, or I should reach out to you, or something like that, anything yeah. like that, I felt like would have been like a thumbs up for Bernie. So Bernie sends Elsie to go chase down a stray. Bernie is not done having a terrible day because... Poor Bernie. It's like Bernie's no good, terrible, horrible, right. no good, awful day. He runs into Cullen. We're starting to get an idea of the power structure here. And Cullen is somewhat above Bernie. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but what Cullen is holding him responsible for, as a person in corporate world, I would really hate to be on the, on the line for this because she's saying you told me our entire boss wasn't going to give us trouble and he did and I'm blaming you for that. What is Bernie supposed to do about that? From what I could surmise it was more that Bernie is the guy who they send in to talk to the boss. He didn't come completely clean with them about everything that the boss was doing and didn't express clearly enough with them that the programming codes and whatnot were actually still problematic. He was telling them, oh, you know, it's, it's fine, it's fine, everything's fine. We pulled the couple hosts that were having a problem and it's all under control. And so I think they're more blaming him for, I'm going to say, like covering up for the boss or in any way, you know, dancing around. But obviously, he's the guy you send in to talk to the boss because he isn't very quick to sell the boss out and the boss knows that. So he's more willing to talk to Bernie. That's what I meant by which him having good. possibly a couple of agendas because he seems to be running his own experiment and protective of Ford. I think he has to be protective of Ford because there's a lot to be gained by keeping 
that relationship strong. At the same time, he does have a responsibility to the rest of the park and to Cullen and whomever their stakeholders are. He is the one that all of them rely on to go in and have these conversations with Ford. But Ford is going to give him information with the wink of the eye that you're going to filter this conversation when you go back and tell them. He's only going to tell you this much because he knows you're not supposed to tell that much to the next guy. Telephone tag. Basically, purple monkey dishwasher, if you will. So this puts Bernie in the really unfortunate position of having to go to Ford, the boss of everything, and say, have you been lying to me? I was really surprised when Cullen said that half their storylines are in disarray. That seemed like a huge number of storylines to be having a problem. Right, like whatever Sizemore put together last week, they, they, were acting they like didn't do any of it. Two host, Abernathy and the Milk Bandits were well, having their issues. No, I think you're, it's not issues. It's that Ford has his own narrative that he's putting together. And in order to implement it, he's having to pull units from here, pull units from there, retask them, reassign them, reclothe them, re-everything them. Okay, so he's basically poaching yes. hosts from other narratives, yes. which is then leaving them... Completely, yeah, and not making sense. That's even, how probably. I understood. That makes complete sense to me, especially because she said something like he's carved out a whole section of the park for this new narrative. Setting wise, he's actually like starting to kind of claim this like dibs on this area for this narrative, which it sounds like it was a big part of the of the entire park. Well, I bet and it then, involves that church or that steeple anyway. I think it's going to be that area too where he was standing up there on that sort of, I don't want to call it a mountaintop necessarily, but something about where he was standing up on that plateau that I feel like there's going to be something about him either being able to overlook it or something up there. Ford invites Bernie down to his private office, which was amazing. I know that the heads that he has hanging up are obviously going to be original host template heads, you know, like molds or casts or something. Yeah, that makes complete sense because that's what they would put up in like the president's office at like Smith and Wesson, right? Yeah. They'd probably put the cast or the mold from like the original gun. Or... But I had to wonder if these were borrowed from Game of Thrones, the house of black and white where Arya gets her ass handed to her by a sadistic little blonde girl. But it there's was also a, really... a lot of cool stuff. A lot of like how a filmmaker might have old cameras or, you know, a scientist might have old lab equipment. Well, he has old old robot stuff all over his office an old not just a player piano but a guy actually playing, playing the, the piano, player piano. Right. right no it was really cool and he seemed like the type of person who needed to surround himself by all of these things because I think it inspires him to create what the next level will be. And so if you kind of surround yourself with the most primitive things and then you put next to it the evolution and the evolution and the evolution and then your desk, it's kind of like, and then what? You know, your creation that day needs to be the next in the chain. Like when Guy Gilchrist told us about the route to Jim Henson's desk in Jim Henson's office last year, it was like, you had to follow this long path all through the entire Jim Henson company that was kind of like a yellow brick road and then you finally got to his desk. Exactly. So you need to you needed to understand the inner workings of the Henson company before you talk to Jim and that's fair, right? Yeah. I think Ford handles the idea of his trusted subordinate coming up and saying, "Have you been lying to me?" remarkably smoothly, almost rehearsed so smoothly. 
I am going to call it a slow burn because of how it ends. Okay. So I think it's a situation where you're right. He didn't visibly or audibly react to Bernie's kind of insulting, like you said, somewhat offensive comment of like, I don't think you're telling me the truth. However, I think at the end, he delivers a blow anyway. Bernie brings Elsie's findings of a robot named Walter talking to an invisible force in his life that he calls Arnold as his evidence that possibly Ford hasn't been completely forthcoming (laughs) with him. Ford, acting completely unruffled, is like, well, of course he's talking to Arnold, silly billy goat. Right. Let me just explain this very simple tale of the founding of Westworld, which I'm sorry, it kind of seems like the type of thing that would have been around by now, like some sort of whisperings. Maybe this is how like legends of like whispers happen where you're like, oh, I think there really was an Arnold. Maybe it's from this one conversation. He which has a picture on his desk. So it's like, how did no one else get down there and see these pictures? But Ford said... They expunged him, basically. Exactly. And that he kind of just sat back passively while they scrubbed him from the records. Mm -hmm. Now, that all sounds freaking frightening. And I would think if you were Byrne, you should be very nervous if they don't have a problem completely scrubbing the founding partner off of the records. It seems like these people are powerful and freaky, Mm -hmm. that they are completely willing to just make that human disappear. Yeah. But he gives Bernie what we can only take right now to be as as a truthful recounting of Arnold, his role in the company, and his contribution to the hosts. Arnold was basically Ford's partner. And I don't even actually know if Arnold is a first name or a last name in this case. It could be either, such as Arnold Jackson of Different Strokes fame or Benedict Arnold of Treachery fame. He started the park and he was the mind behind trying to put consciousness into the hosts. Ford described that they worked three years in the park without anybody around and that Arnold was was in his prime trying to figure out how to introduce not just pre-programmed behaviors but actual consciousness. And that's when he brings up the idea of the bicameral mind which up until Sunday night I had never heard of before. Had you? I haven't and it was super interesting to read the theory behind it. The idea is from a book published in 1976 that stated that primitive man, man that existed before he had developed language, had two parts to his mind, basically. One that spoke and guided his motives, and one that listened and obeyed. One part told him what to do, and the other part did what it was told. And Bernie's like, um, I thought that was debunked, which is interesting because if you look it up now, it is not debunked. It is it is a point of contention. It is something that some people really bought into, and it's something that some people flat out disagree with, but it's hardly debunked. So this is some point in the future when they're like, no, no. <laughs> Ford's like, no, no, it, it's, it's not so great for human minds, but it's okay as a way to start developing artificial 
intelligence. Okay. And so he mentions that this development made it so that hosts would pass what's called the Turing test. Now, as a sci-fi person, I've heard the Turing test several times, and I'm sure that didn't mean anything to you. Well, I never. Did it? I dated Turing, so like you would even know. Turing was gay. Exactly. And he swallowed poison because the government made him chemically castrate himself because he was gay. Well, it was a sordid relationship, okay? Yeah, it was a sad story for Alan, for sure. Simply put, the Turing test is a test developed by Alan Turing that was designed with artificial intelligence in mind. And it's basically, if you can ask whatever the computer is a question and its answer is indistinguishable from that of a human then you've achieved artificial intelligence. So the scene that they're showing was teaching them look like square dancing out in the street. And when he mentions this, so I was thinking, well, that's not exactly a great <laughs> measure of anything. But right, but do yeah. they square dance like any typical human would right. know how to square dance? Well, their dosy does are not so good, but they're. <laughs> Eventually, though, they abandoned this approach because that speaking, listening model turned into robots that either either went along with the program and kind of developed their own consciousness, which was the design, or they felt like God was talking to them or some similar thing, something that they couldn't understand, and it made them crazy. And that's when they show the poor blonde woman whose face is all scratched up and kind of shaking and all yeah that. so she was it was the equivalent of her having like voices in her head yes because the way that we sort of talked about it was that they had their programming as like channel one and then channel two was arnold's voice actually giving them instructions mm -hmm. and the thought was that eventually arnold's voice was going to turn into their own thoughts Mm -hmm. And somehow, so you have like this sort of section of your mind that is thinking and a part that is actually speaking and doing. Right. And they had to, they called it bootstrap the organic thinking part with Arnold's voice first mm -hmm. because they didn't have any thinking mind. But you can imagine this would drive someone pretty crazy if they were pretty close to being human. So now the interesting thing is that up until this explanation, you'd only have the expected experiences of what they'd been programmed with within that behavior set that we'd already seen before. Kind of a complicated loop-based routine kind of behavior, you know? They follow their, their routine, they get out of it within certain parameters, and then they go back to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the reveries that we've seen seem to come from just older iterations of the program that they'd been programmed to be, like in Abernathy's case, you know, the sheriff or a professor or something at different times. So those memories come back. But now we know that at some point, at least some of the hosts were programmed with Arnold's logic. And now some of that is surfacing, and that's what was coming out in the Milk Bandit situation. That's super scary because they needed to put the kibosh on that program because the robots were turning up crazy. Do you think Dolores is experiencing that or some other variety of reverie that's making her more unique? Do I think she's hearing Arnold's voice? Mm-hmm. Maybe, and that is... Because she's the oldest. Maybe, because she definitely is hearing some sort of voice that we can tell as the viewer. There's like a voice over that seems to be talking to her. We discussed this last episode that we couldn't put our finger on... Right, the do you remember. ...whose voice it is, which is was 
complicating for us because we thought maybe it is the man in black, maybe it is Stubbs, maybe it is Bernie. We couldn't quite figure out who it is. And this puts a whole nother spin on it. If there's another man's voice that we hadn't actually heard before, that is fresh for us. And I do think that this concept of Arnold being out there and being somebody who is around is fascinating. I thought this- Well, his ghost anyway, because Bernie wants to know where's he, where is Arnold now, and he's dead, as it turns out. I Do you wa- think that that was truthful? I don't know. I really don't know, especially because he says, well, he died in the park, and we all just called it an accident. But- You know, I know that Arnold was really very careful, so dot, 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 dot. Like, wait, what? And the way Anthony Hopkins shifts his eyes around, I mean, he's one of the most terrific actors living today. If he's trying to convey a less than truthful answer, he knows how to do that. And to me, it just didn't seem like the entire truth. Oh, no. And I think it was meant to be super ambiguous because maybe his body died, but maybe somehow they managed to extract upload Arnold him, right? What we would consider him like his true self. And so maybe somehow his body and many of the people of the world call their body like their host, right? It's just the pod or whatnot that their spirit and everything's in. If they manage to extract Arnold, one of the things that struck me in this conversation was when Ford said Arnold died in the park. And it made me think, I've heard a similar statement before. Oh, yeah. It's when the man in black said, I was born in this park. Mm -hmm. It made me wonder did somehow Arnold and the man in black have a relationship or connection that I don't understand yet? Did did This whole situation begs that, actually. Well, and the idea that there is a man in black Jacob relationship, some sort of brotherly relationship that is existing on a higher level than we all see it. She's referring to lost here, people then that makes me feel like if we think that Ford is trying to play God or even, shit, the devil, because we don't really know what side he's coming down on, he has to have a counterpart, right? He's not, mm. he can't just be out there in the world. If you're, if you're come that close to godliness, right, you got to be acquainted with the devil. He told us that. Well, does that mean that Arnold in any form or fashion exists in this park and therefore maybe it simply is the residue of him inside all of these hosts much like any creation or inventor you would say you could see his fingerprints on that creation long after he had nothing to do with it but just his personality or his technique in creating this thing you could just see it in the invention forever Mm -hmm. long past him so I wonder if Ford, he needs a counterpart. And we already didn't really know who it was. The one thing that kept popping up with that bicameral mind stuff was the genealogy of religion page kept coming up. When I put in bicameral mind, genealogy of religion kept coming up. What? Hmm. So there was something that was like this. Either you took that voiceover to be the voice of God, meaning... There's something bigger than me telling me what to do, guiding me in my daily life, you know, telling me which way to turn, that type of thing, which we know people every day who say, I feel, I hear the voice of God, and that's how I know 
how to behave. That's how I know what to do. Well, if you look at this scenario with the bicameral mind, it's kind of like, oh, okay, that's kind of the Arnold, right? There's mm-hmm. this bigger voice that you didn't actually think you thought of yourself, but a voice comes into your mind and then you kind of feel it, hear it in your head, and then you act on it. And I thought the idea was like the flip side of that is like they were hoping that Arnold's voice would sort of Fade. morph yeah. into them having essentially free will, right? Yeah. Which is sort of the opposite side of like God tells you everything to do and there's a predestined plan. Versus no man has free will and you are going to decide your path. And that's where the the discussion takes a turn that I didn't really expect. If you listen to last week's episode, then you heard me say that I thought that Ford was going to introduce religion, thereby kind of expanding their boundaries and making them kind of broader beings. But from here, he says that the main reason that Arnold's project was abandoned was because Nobody wanted free thinking robots. They need they the park needed them to have these more programmatically operated robots. Right. And he says point blank, like the biggest problem with Arnold's whole idea was that you cannot have these hosts out there with their own thoughts. For one reason, look what these people are getting done to them. The hosts. I mean, look what these guests are doing when they come into the park what would happen to them if they actually were thinking thinking feeling beings you know what would they have made of this park basically ford says something that confused me a little bit on this point he is an advocate in this episode at least for keeping them controlled and not free thinking but then he says wiping their memories every night is the least we can do for them now that's kind of a funny thing to say about something that you are an ardent believer in it doesn't matter what they remember because they're programs so whatever yes i agree with that it doesn't matter but i think that like any programmable machine you still don't want there to be that residue if you will right that some sort of buildup is going to cause a problem i don't know if you know how hard drives work i really don't (laughs) there are the platters in your hard drive that keep the data on them and then there's a smaller section of the platter called the boot record or something like that and that is basically the kind of the roadmap to where the data is stored on the hard drive when things are deleted quickly um, meaning not formatted then all that happens is the roadmap is deleted but the data is probably still on the hard drive it's just there's no roadmap to get to it so when you say like the residue we still even have that residue now it's it's just you know our computers aren't that smart. I kind of feel that way about the internet where they say like once you put something on the internet, even if you take it off, like it's still out there. It's still retrievable in some form or fashion, right? Yes. It's kind of it feels the same way to me with all the robots and all the hosts. It just feels like once you put it out there, once you have them experience it in some way, it's still retrievable in some form or fashion. Ford put a lot of effort in the end of this conversation to chasing Bernie away from feeling like the robots were at all alive. Falling into the same trap that Arnold did. Ford bothers to go through this entire embarrassing scene with technician who's working on a host. He had kind of nonchalantly 
draped uh, piece of fabric over the host. Ford, in front of Bernie, goes over and very dramatically makes an example of the situation and is like, you never forget, Bernie, that the hosts are not real. You don't fall into the same trap as Arnold. Bothers to use a scalpel and slices the host's face which was gross. And honestly, Bernie and the technician like cringe, which is kind of crazy because it's like if I walked over to a bowl of Play-Doh and cut it, would anyone in the room cringe? No, they yeah, wouldn't. But I mean, if I had to sit across from a lovingly hand-sculpted dick sitting on a on a, on a stool, you know, half the day and asking it questions, I, I might cover him up because I just don't want to look at it all day. And that's probably what this guy was doing. Intrigue. Well, but that was part of the thing, though, is you can't think of it as a dick sitting on the stool. It's a machine. It it would be like you right now covering some of the monitor. To an extent, it walks like a dick. <laughs> it quacks like a dick. <laughs> I'm just saying. But he didn't. He wanted to make this gigantic, dramatic point. That yes. it was no different than like, well, why don't I drape some fabric over my microphone because I don't want it to look too dick-like. All this really makes me wonder what he's up to with the church thing in the last episode. I think it was super and... dramatic. I think I think it was, on one hand, he's sitting there trying to have the hosts have all these memories and trying to have this depth of personality. Well, he introduced the reveries, which is, which is like deliberate at doing that. And why do you think he was doing that? In order to give them depth. Yes. In order to have them have some part of their personality that was more authentic because they remembered a past experience and so then they were acting on it, which gave them this more real sense about them. But at the same time, he's sitting here preaching to Bernie about how we wipe them clean every night and we take away all their memories. We're They're totally inanimate objects. What a crazy paradox. That old Ford is sitting here laying out for everybody. Like, we're going to scalpel them over here. But on the other hand, I like to have a drink with Bill. I mean, like, wait, what are you doing? Like, it's very crazy. But this end part is the part where this he. is how you make the dog put the tail between his legs and leave and not turn back at you and right. even hang their head. He brings up his son and tries to imply that the loss of Charlie his son some three years ago is kind of triggering his need to replace that hole that left by Charlie with something. And so he may be seeing something in the hosts that isn't there, which is something he accused Arnold of doing. I honestly think that the way that he says it to him is almost the most important thing because he says it to him in an accusatory slash chastising way like to the point where bernie even smiles and was like why did you say that to me because he's like don't forget bernie they're not real and bernie of course is gonna like throw his eyebrows and be like the hell like why did you just say that to me that was so gross and he's like, oh you know forgive me but i you know i know you have a really bad heartache about your son dying honestly i bet you could stop most parents in their tracks no matter what they're doing, by bringing up the death of a child to them. They could be doing anything. You could be at a PTA meeting and be like, I know you want extra recess, probably because your child died. And it's like, what? Like, 
You can't just throw that out there when you just want to like stab at someone, which is basically what Ford did. Ford's like, oh, so I really hope you hurry back and ask me more questions, especially if you're having a sad day about your son. Like it's like, I never want to come back here. I'm never going to ask you any questions again because you are basically training me right now that at the end of me probing you with any type of questions, you're going to make me feel like shit about my most personal subjects. So you've done an awesome job of making me feel like I'm conditioned into staying away and certainly not asking private questions. He does the only thing that someone in the circumstances could do, which is, well, I'm going to give you two or three options. You could go find someone to have sex with, a stranger, blow off steam, right? Cullen, what has you? You could go drink. That's a fine way to forget your worries. Or three, you gotta find someone who went through the same ordeal with you and commiserate. Do you suppose that the woman played by Gina Torres from Firefly and the Matrix sequels is still his wife? Because the way they talked about getting in touch with each other and how that used to be such a problem, and now she, <laughs> it's not such a big deal to her anymore. It kind of made me think, you know, if they were married, they'd still make the effort of getting in touch. Yeah, I took it exactly like where you're going with this, which is I think that they probably divorced after the child died and that when he was younger and they had a family and they were trying to have a relationship, it was such a big deal to both of them to find this line out to be able to have these conversations. But now, even she said, I don't know if these conversations are helpful or hurtful to even hear from you anymore, because all it does is stir the pot. I mean, he basically passed the buck. I mean, think of it like this. That that woman was probably going about her day. She probably had gone to yoga that morning. She may have seen a movie with a friend. And here she gets a phone call from Bernie who just wants to dredge up. Oh, remember Charlie? You want to talk about that for a while, about how we're all really sad? And it was like, oh my God, all you did was take what your boss said to you and then totally foist it off onto someone else. Like that sucked. Her response is back to him. I don't have this verbatim, but just the way that she talked back to him didn't seem to be the kinds of questions and answers that you would give back if you were trying to spare the other person's feelings. More like if you were just gonna, you were just gonna talk and it was just, you didn't have that same stake in it that you would if, you know, you still needed to be together at the end of the conversation. Do you mean that you felt like she didn't sugarcoat it? Yes. How she felt? Right. Well, I'm going to throw out a different thought on that, a different spin. I'm going to say, for one thing, they've had this same exact conversation many times. So there wasn't any need to sugarcoat it. This wasn't the first time they talked about the loss of Charlie and it wasn't going to be the last time they talked about it. I feel like they both have completely separate lives now with their own paths moving on from Charlie. But at the same time, they're the only two people they can talk to who walked the walk at that moment in time. So I think that they're capable of talking about it in a very real, very, like you said, it would sound to an outsider, like you're being really harsh with one another. But they were just being real with one another. They they weren't cloaking it for anyone else's sensitivities. They were just saying, this is how I feel. When I wake up in the morning, I think about him. I don't have a day when I don't think about him. After the uplifting phone call with Charlie's mom, he decides, you know, I'm going to give Dolores one shot to save her mind here. We're going to have another clandestine meeting. I'm going to talk to her. I think I'm going to reset her. 
get her back to, to the same operating specs as everybody else and just quit with this foolishness. But it's very interesting. He asks, I think I should restore you. What do you think? And he, and he goes on to ask her, does she feel like she has two minds, basically, this bicameral theme coming back? And she says, I, I don't under, understand what you mean by that. There's only, there's only one me. And she goes on to say, and when I finally discover myself, I'll be free. So she's, just, so she's finally starting to break out with these more abstract ideas than she could possibly have come up with with her pre-existing programming. Like she's only programmed, like Ford pointed out, to be the gunslinger's girlfriend. That's it. So the idea of leaving the ranch, that's not supposed to be there. So he decides, you know what, let's keep rolling the dice and, and see what we get here. Percentage wise, how close do you think he was to resetting her? I think that Dolores is way further along than she's letting on. I think she's so far past being reset. He doesn't even know what he doesn't know about what she's thinking about, which is crazy. Like she's surpassed the maker in this way. But I think everything she says, I think, is completely calculating at this point. She knows what the right response is. She knows what she has to keep from him. Just the fact that he's even being so blunt as to say, like, hey, I'm thinking of resetting you. If she even had a sliver of thought. Self-preservation. She would have to be like, I am a robot. <laughs> like, you know, like there would ding, be no, <laughs> exactly. There'd be no reason to admit being any more human, you know, that's only going to get you reset. So don't do it. Why don't we back up to when Elsie branches off from Bernie. Elsie's had a good adventure this episode. She got scolded. She was on taking her own initiative to look up the milk bandits and Bernie said, why don't you go work on the stray issue? But you know what? That's obviously their, their corporate culture is to shame people and to stop asking questions. That's what's mm. happened this entire time. You ask a question that you're not supposed to be asking rather than anyone be like, wow, that was very insightful, Elsie. It's going to be like this. That's not a part of your job description, is it? And it seems like you've really been falling down on the job. You know what? I was one step away from writing you up from not fulfilling your job descriptions. And they, they get each other all riled up in a way that's like, ah, forget that I even said anything. They're like, and by the way, it's one coffee stir at the Keurig, not two. We are not just handing out stirs today. And it just makes people like so self-conscious that they're not doing their own job or like Bernie, that people are, are looking into his eyes and seeing his real loss and everything that they completely forget about their probes and whatever they were trying to ask. So she teams up with Stubbs, gets in the service elevator, and they're going to go find this stray host. And I was thinking about it just now. Both of the women that we've seen at Westworld HQ, both Cullen and Elsie, seem to be exhibiting kind of over-masculine traits as compared to the men's stations there. Okay. Like they're overly aggressive with their counterpart. Bernie actually seems like a way softer touch than Cullen or Elsie, for sure. Aggressiveness is the right word or just they were take charge women. And maybe in order to live in Westworld, like generally, maybe it's a little bit like cutting edge slash you live away from your family and you're living in this sort of deployment type situation. It seems like it's going to only draw a certain type of personality. And Stubbs, I mean, he, he, he carries a gun, he carries a, a knife, he, 
He's in the quality assurance department, but he seems to be more like ranch security, you know? He is security, though. So I assume it wouldn't be crazy to think that not unlike Las Vegas or something, you might have situations now and then where... You need muscle. You got to Yeah, you got to step in. I can't exactly imagine what the scenarios are, but if they're really plying the guests with real alcohol and they have access to like knives, unless the blades are like rubber or they like go into the handle like those retractable like magicians type swords, I, I mean, there would have to be ways you could get hurt all the time. Well, the exchange between them and the elevator she teases him pretty harshly. I don't know. I, I kind of think that Stubbs might might kind of like Elsie in a way. Like You think this is a little bit like pulling each other's braids and whatnot? Well, a little bit, but she, she seems to yank braids, whereas he just tugs braids. They wind up the encampment of the milk bandit and newcomer that they're hosting. We got a lot of good information from this camp. They found something in one of the tents. It was several wood carvings that all had the same pattern carved into a side of them. So she found like a turtle shell and a bear and some other stuff. And they all had this same weird... I saw it right away as being something that looked like a constellation. And I was trying hard to see if it was a, it was a maze or a map. A lot of people use the stars as a map. Sure. Well, later down the trail, Stubbs also identifies it as, it, he says Orion, doesn't look like Orion to me. I don't really know my constellations, but he also saw the star type pattern that, that she didn't pick up. And of course she felt embarrassed to have the lunkhead notice something sciencey or before she did. I thought that the information that they had shared when they first walk up to the camp, the group was on a loop because the stray was the guy who was able to use the axe and they couldn't move forward in cooking the dinner right. because they didn't have any way to get wood. Finally, explain to us about why certain people could do certain things. With the weaponry, that was a really, really good explanation. It's important. I mean, they spell out only certain people can use weapons. Only certain people can use that axe. Only certain people can start a fire. And it makes sense because Stubbs was saying was that you have to control who has access to the weapons. And we have seen this on every television show, every movie, where ultimately it's like only two people can have the code to the button. Only, you know, five people can know where we're keeping the cache of guns or whatever. Like, it is true in regular life and so why would it be any different in Westworld that you can't have every robot be able to pick up the axe and just throw it all around you've got to have the one guy who does the axe I did think it was kind of funny and it was like a little like comic relief there a little bit that like they couldn't do anything all those robots were stuck in this narrative loop because no one could chop the wood and so they couldn't start the fire and therefore they couldn't get to the next level of what they were supposed to be doing to cook their dinner because the axe man wandered away. So it was funny to just kind of see all the hosts sitting around and be like, huh? You cook other things, you. And just like have to come up with this ridiculous banter that really made no sense, but they couldn't move on. When they finally find the Axemen yes. down in the chasm, I could not understand what had happened. Do you think that he fell into that chasm? Or did he I do. jump in? I, I think he fell. Doing what? When they shine the light down on him, 
He looks like one of the Walking Dead, right? Kind of crazed and he looks like a zombie, yeah. Just pawing at the air and and not really gazing in any certain direction very long. Maybe he, you could assume that he's been damaged in the fall or something, but he's he looks not right. And Elsie takes a moment and calls, tries to get a hold of Bernie on the phone. And her message, they play the message for us, and it's and it's basically that. This guy got an idea all on his own. This is probably something that we need to keep track of because Stubbs commences to chopping his head off. I can't quite understand why he would climb down there with essentially the equivalent of the Walking Dead zombie. Mm -hmm. Maybe we've all seen enough Walking Dead to be like, why would you just hop down there with him? And the man seemed like the type of build where he could have like completely pinched Stubbs' head right off. Well, he asked he asked Elsie to put her put him in sleep mode. Right, and that worked out awesomely. It did not work out awesomely. <laughs> so it seemed like she tried to, and maybe even accomplished it for a minute or two. But after that partial beheading, the axe man wakes up and... And then what? Manages to un... It's like he throws off Stubbs in a way that gets him kind of pinned so that he can make his way up the rope, he being the axe man, and Stubbs is still struggling with his new injury and maybe being wedged between rocks or something. It was was dark, so it was very hard to tell. What follows is where keeping track of this guy's head becomes kind of interesting because Elsie didn't trust that Stubbs was going to do what she wanted him to do. Which was? I'm not exactly sure. I think that I just know that that's why she called Bernie. Stubbs is like, oh, we just need the the unit in the head, so that's why I'm going to take the head. And then the guy destroys his own head, question mark, right? Why did he know to do that? He, He wouldn't know to do that. Well, so he essentially committed suicide by picking up a rock and smashing in his own like CPU, right? I think so. I'll be honest, at first, the way that the rope was and the way that Stubbs was down below and the way that the rock came down onto his head, to me, it almost had looked like he had picked up the rock, like maybe he was going to hurt Elsie. And somehow he was still wrapped up with the rope and it seemed like Stubbs had yanked the rope and that the yanking of the rope pulled his own arms at himself, the stray, and that banged the rock onto his own head. So my first viewing of it, I thought that Stubbs was essentially saving Elsie from an attacking stray. Stubbs was out of it and this guy just committed suicide right in front of Elsie. It'll be interesting next week to see if they get anything out of his his computer you know, CPU or or if it's trashed from him, him doing that. I can't imagine what the scenario was except that he had to have heard a voice. He well, had to have heard, I don't know if it was Arnold's or if it was the same type of voice that Dolores was hearing or if that's the same voice or not, but something had to have said, this is a uh, cyanide pill moment. Like yeah. you're about to get caught by the enemy. They can't find out what information's in your brain. That's what I was just thinking. You've got to power yourself in the head. So do you think he was trying to go up that mountain and he fell in? That is what Elsie was calling Bernie to say, was that there's no reason he should have wanted to go up that mountain, but that's where he was going. Well, and we know that Ford was up on a mountaintop. I wonder if he was trying I wonder if he was trying to get somewhere. See if it is one of those kind of ghost in the machine kind of stories, yeah. with Arnold being that ghost, then you might be able to buy some sort of idea where 
he's taking control of different hosts for different periods and then, you know, having to jump to another host before he gets found out. You know what I mean? Well, would a computer virus work that way? Not the ones that we have now. Do you think the hosts are like wireless in that way? That like a, I don't know how to explain it, but like that a virus could jump from one to another? I'd go with, yeah, in this period. I could go with that. So what if they almost have like a like a virus? Like that's something like no, maybe I was going with like the whole Arnold maybe it's not his entire consciousness because it seems like that would blow out the computer and the robot, but I'm I'm saying that that Arnold for whatever reason needs if he is this ghost of the machine, right? Then he does need boots on the ground to do something. And that, sure. that's why he takes over the, the host, but some of them can't stand it. And then they go wild and start killing people like crazy, like the milk bandit guy. That's, that's just a guess. Interesting. That's a lot to think about. This episode was so meaty. I've really had a hard time watching it and digesting it and then starting over and watching it again and then discussing it with you. I feel like I still am kind of strangely reeling after each of these episodes to be like, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. And I feel like I'm a pretty smart gal, but I really think that some of these concepts are pretty out there. Well, the Arnold thing felt like, okay, this is full of answers. And then it turns out, no, there's only more questions. I was really, really immediately thinking that Arnold and and Man in Black were so interconnected. And then that makes me like, so like, uh, I don't know if that works at all now, but I'm going to keep working on that theory. Let's flip over to Teddy. Teddy is hosting a woman newcomer and he's showing her a nice easy gunfight to ease into where he'll do some of the heavy lifting and she can support what he's doing with her rifle and she gets to shoot some bad guys and then they get to go have sex at the saloon and have sex at the saloon they're supposed to have a drink but clementine is too much oh yeah that that rind talk is <laughs> Listen to me. I don't know who is not going to get turned on by talking about rind. This does put Teddy... I'm going to get a t-shirt that says some shit about rind on it. (laughs) (laughs) This does put Teddy right at the window, right when he needs to be, to notice Dolores. Wait, I think my t-shirt's going to say, I'm bringing rind back. Because it's so gross and weird. It is gross and weird. Their pattern that that we've seen play out already continues, where they ride off into the range and... She says, you came back to me. And he says, I told you I would. Oh, my God. Jesus, those accents are awful. Mine are there. (laughs) Your choice. So the conversation between the two of them about moving off and going off together into the sunset, Teddy saying, someday we'll do that. Dolores seemed pretty annoyed by that answer and was like, yeah, that sounds like never, dude. That really sounds like never. Like, you're not saying tomorrow or next Tuesday. You keep saying someday. And that's such crazy. And she's like really calling him out on this. There's an overriding need of Teddy's to atone for something. He keeps saying, I have reckoning to do before I deserve you. Yes. The next scene we have with Teddy is with Ford. Where This was kind of a sad scene, didn't you think? Yeah. If you were Teddy and you all of a sudden became self-aware, right? And you learned that you were designed, and I didn't realize this, you were designed to be a tough guy, a gunfighter. He calls him the stalwart gunfighter. 
But every time you go up against a newcomer, you get your ass kicked. Bang. Just like that. You don't ever get killed by your fellow robots because you are the best gun in town. But you can't beat a newcomer because that's the way that those are the rules. Wouldn't that be like you programmed me to be the best, you know, but you made it so I could never win. He does pick on it. He asks him about his great yearning for a girl. And he says, well, you're never getting the girl. Sad, right? And Teddy's like, what? Like, surely so long as I do my reckoning, I, I will get the girl. And he's like, yeah, no, here's the thing. You don't even have a backstory. Doesn't like, exist. You don't even know why you're guilty. We just put the feeling of guilt inside you. Honestly, I find this concept pretty fascinating because I feel like Teddy represents a lot of regular, typical people out there who go around leading their entire lives thinking that they have some reckoning to do. There's so many people who are lighting candles and praying and doing things that are extremely guilt-ridden. And if you ask them, like, what is it that you did? Or what is it that you're trying to atone for? I really want an answer and, like, be specific. Well, you see, Eve ate of the fruit. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to make it just religious. So don't even, if you're a religious person, I'm sorry if I'm offensive at all. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that there are acts that you see people do that if you ask just really on a surface level, like, what is it you're doing? They will say, I am trying to make myself good for with God or with this person or whatever. And you would say, why? What did you do? What What is the thing? What was the big problem? They could almost come back to this where you'd say, you know, I don't really have a backstory. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I did. I just walk around with an overwhelming feel feeling of guilt and like I'm not worthy. And so I just keep being self-deprecating. I keep seeking approval from others and different situations. I just feel terrible. But yeah, I couldn't actually tell you my backstory at all. So it's kind of freaky because this is real. And yet when Ford tells Teddy that, it seems like heartbreaking that he doesn't have a backstory. And yet you probably could name five people who don't have a real good story as to why they're so without worth. But And those people are. No, we're not doing that. Ford lightens up and says, you know what? Do you want a small part in my massive new narrative to give you some backstory for why you feel so bad? Okay. It's about this guy named Wyatt. And then he presses a like a download button on an iPad. And Teddy all of a sudden is like, yeah, I, I do remember Wyatt. I care a lot about Wyatt now. <laughs> right. I really loved when he's Down like. south in Escalante. <laughs> Escalante. I like when he keeps saying, you know, Wyatt claimed he could hear the voice of God. And there was a lot of bad business. In case y'all don't know about me, which you don't, let me just tell you, I say bad business probably once a day. Like, oh, we don't do that. That's bad business. So it was hysterical that why it's all about bad business. She wouldn't say it so much if people wouldn't keep bringing her bad business, but they do. <laughs> so It's not bringing me bad business. It's that they're doing something that's bad oh, business over it's there. It's just a bad business identifier that I, you have. I, if people have Gator, I have bad business radar. After getting the new Wyatt implant, Teddy is set Set loose on the town again, where he runs into Dolores, who is being accosted by some 
milk bandit types. <laughs> I love that we constantly have to call people milk bandits. Do well, you recognize that it's probably supposed to be like bank robbers, but they're not. They're freaking milk bandits because they are seeking the milk, okay? But it's hilarious because they're never robbing the bank. They're always seeking the dairy. Well, if they, I mean, they're drinking it, No, you're totally it. right. It's just funny because it's such a silly thing. They're never seeking money. They're seeking milk. Teddy offers to defend Dolores' honor with his gun if need be. And there is a newcomer in the group that's like, hey, uh, you didn't say, I, I only said, you know, something easy going. And so the mutton chops guy is like, well, she ain't worth the lead. And, and he leads them off. I thought it was an amazing scene because it's the first time that we've seen Teddy go toe to toe, and even with a newcomer, and he didn't get shot. It's the first time that Teddy didn't get killed in that moment, right? Yeah. Every other time he's been slaughtered and it's been embarrassing. <laughs> but it's like this newcomer either didn't know that he could shoot Teddy. Like he could definitely have just shot Teddy and it would have been simple. Or there's something about the air of Teddy that was like, you know what? I am fighting for this woman's honor. That's the word. Dolores desires a shooting lesson. Is that what you think? I don't remember. How did they get to decide to do shooting practice? Does Dolores ask to learn how to shoot a gun? That's a good point. They just wind up at shooting practice. They just wind up with Dolores holding a gun and Teddy being like, aim it over there. But we did not see what led them to the ranch. And it's a little bizarre, to be honest that a woman who would be out on the range with parents who seem they don't they don't look elderly but they behave elderly she's the one always riding around with all the cattle and riding all over the ranch they're always sitting on the porch rocking or whatever how many times be honest you live in the south if you were an able-bodied rancher and i don't even care how able-bodied you are if you owned a ranch is your behind sitting on the porch in the middle of the day rocking or are you out there doing a thousand chores to keep the ranch up I think you're out there. Your dying breath is out on the ranch. So there's no like, oh, he's like 80. He First of all, he's not. But secondly, it's like it doesn't even ring true to what a rancher's lifestyle would be like. The fact that she doesn't know how to shoot a gun seems weird. And now we find an even weirder fact. Turns out her finger is incapable of pulling a trigger. If you look at the way she was holding the gun, she couldn't even hold the gun in a way that would result in a fired weapon she was holding it with her thumb on the same side of the of the handle as the rest of her fingers what like it was velcroed to her hand well she was holding it two-handed so know. it was like flat palmed yeah so she had her finger in the trigger guard but oh, that's weird yeah it wasn't gonna work <laughs> and the gun well, you know kept what? pointing in weird directions and stuff that's like a Trying to make a Barbie doll hold something, though, because her hands are, like, plastic and, like, molded in a certain way. You can't actually. They would just clasp it like seal flippers. You wouldn't be able to bend her hand to fit it right, which I guess is kind of the point. She can't seem to fire the weapon. Teddy reasons that some hands weren't meant for shooting, I guess. Oh, Teddy, he's so romantic. But that's when the posse rides up with news of Wyatt being in town. And this Not Wyatt. Wyatt. This rings Teddy's newly honed bell. Right? He's like, oh my God, I've been waiting to hear about Wyatt for the whole my whole life. <laughs> Pretty much. He's like, you know what, Dolores? You're good. Even though the shooting lesson went like 
shit. <laughs> <laughs> and people people might have a grudge against you from earlier. I've got to go. People might have a grudge <laughs> for me from earlier. <laughs> Those milk bandits might show back up, but pishaw, I've got some shit to do with the sheriff because this guy, Wyatt, you would not believe. Teddy tells the story of Wyatt with the posse. It is reasonably scary. Things in Escalante, they are bad always. Well, I like it because Escalante is Spanish for escalate. Like, it's like getting worse. Oh. Like, things are happening down in Escalante. We're escalating the situation. Wyatt was a sergeant in the army where Teddy was under his command. Wyatt wanders off one day, comes back with strange ideas. Like the land belonged to him. Yeah, not to the natives and not to the settlers but to him and someone that hadn't even come yet. Freaky. Yes. What does that even mean? And somebody who hadn't come yet. Is this a Jesus story? Is this a religious well, thing? he does recruit followers, but the less Jesus part of that is where he insists that they wear the bones and skins of their enemies. Shit, I hope Jesus was not like that. He was cool with like sandals and robes, that, which is yeah. a lot cooler than Very undocumented period where he was doing the bones and skins. bone art <laughs> right. <laughs> he's like everyone wear your bones and he's like "Ugh, no our turnout was terrible go back to the cashmere robes and the birkenstocks getting away from the religious aspect i swear to god darth maul went running by that or maybe some tuscan raiders and jawas didn't it seem like the also maybe the guy who was on was it raiders the guy who is like the mean devil guy who is going to sacrifice them. Yeah, the Temple of Doom guy. The Kalima guy. So what do you think? Are bones and hides also maybe a sign of like devil stuff? I think it's a, a sign of mastery over whatever you killed. Mm. So it's, I'm bigger than you, obviously, killed you and have your bones to show for it. Do you think that these guys are a part of the new narrative with Ford, or do you think they are some other stray hosts that maybe are like covering themselves up in some form or fashion? No, I think they are Wyatt's men. I mean, they're pretty much as described. Teddy said that they don't feel pain, that they wear the skins and bones of their enemies, and then right away they are attacked by people fitting that description. Teddy goes down with a major fight. Why do you think they don't feel pain? What is that? I don't know why real people would do that unless they were on something, you know? Some... No, but I mean, the bullets didn't seem to penetrate their right. outfits, I mean, so they, that's... They could be, yeah. Well, no, stop and think. Westworld has, has rules. Teddy shot the gun. If they were hosts, they should die. Yeah. So what are they? We don't know yet enough about Ford's meddling with the narrative to know if he's created something that breaks the rules. Okay. As a longtime video gamer, I've always been convinced that the computer has the ability to break the rules whenever it wants. Really? Yeah. I would have given up on video games a long time ago if I if I had just admitted to myself that I was that bad at them. Well, Teddy dies this time in a pretty horrific way. It looks like they were going to tear him apart. Yeah, they had the tomahawks out and machetes. They they actually had firearms that they put away so that they could just crowd in and massacre the poor guy. Freaky. I don't feel good about Teddy coming back next week in a very normal Teddy way. It seems like he is definitely going to be 
changed by that experience. Maybe this kind of thing is meant to stimulate some kind of thing in the hosts, but we just saw Ford have that pandering chat with Teddy where he said, you're just not that big a deal, Teddy. Do you think maybe he actually just did send Teddy to be food for his people? Yeah. He gave Teddy the backstory and the drive and the motivation. He was with his girlfriend that he hasn't, according to his narrative, hasn't seen for a long time. And someone comes and says why it's around. He's programmed to drop everything and go and deal with that. But do you think then that he was programmed and manipulated to just be the prey? Maybe that's why his gun didn't do anything. What would be the point of that? What would be the point of that? The newcomer had already fled, and so this was just host-on-host violence. I've been asking myself, what would be the point of a lot of this? Like the native massacre that Maeve remembers. If there's no newcomer around to watch that, but that's still scripted to happen every day... It made me wonder, like, why would you bother programming something so viscerally violent to occur? If if this park resets every day, then I'm assuming that it happened every day for a certain span of time until they came up with a new narrative. That's kind of what I'm just assuming. But all of the narratives seem very violent that way. I mean, whether they end in a gun battle in the saloon or whether they end with Dolores getting raped and her family getting killed. Like, we haven't seen a narrative that's just like, and we all have a family picnic. Like, we haven't mm. seen that narrative. Well, there was that one guy who was in this posse who said, I told you we should have gone on the riverboat thing. I feel like that would have been like a casino with like the shlimp and blobster buffet. Right. Sort of Mark Twainish kind of guys Doesn't hanging it? around the, the casino tables. Exactly. They would do some petty crimes. Maverick. That, it would be like a reenactment of Maverick. <laughs> that's hilarious. That pretty well ends Teddy's thread in this episode. We'll pick up with William and Logan together. They're kind of a package deal this episode. We got confirmation that for certainty, they are going to be future brother-in-laws. Logan, trying to egg William on, used his sister and her antics as reason why William should just go buck wild. William is given an opportunity to... I think he is given an opportunity. That's a good way to say it. He is given an opportunity to actually shoot one of the hosts. It's almost like the event unfolded in front of him for him, as if someone was pulling the strings to make that happen. A hundred percent. Clementine actually makes eye contact with him two or three times when she's just casually leaning against the saloon there. She 100% is putting herself in the narrative that she's going to be the one taken hostage. And so, oh no, damsel in distress. They're going to force his hand into participating in the actual show. I was so surprised when he got shot and he actually flew backwards. I was too. They said it was sort of like some amount of a... Some impact, impact, right? But not like fly across the prairie there. That was really quite a fall. We saw that it didn't break the skin, but maybe maybe he kind of rolled with the impact or something. I know. How did it push him so far back? Probably he wasn't expecting it. I mean, he was told he couldn't be killed. He interpreted that as he couldn't be hurt. I think he was expecting blanks or something. And so, yeah, maybe he played the part of like an uh, NFL kicker that gets touched and he just like falls on the ground. <laughs> exactly. It's like that video I showed you the other day where they're like in parliament <laughs> and the lady like like hits the other woman on the back of the head with a notebook and then she's like, ah! 
She falls well, then, and rolls around on the ground. <laughs> exactly. You're like, really? She just like hit the back of your head with a notebook. It wasn't that bad. This scene completely gets William's blood flowing. And it seems like he's like, you know what? I actually do want in. I felt like the host should have gotten like a medal that day for getting someone who was just letting the time go by and not really participating or even trying to find out more about this world. And they roped him in because then all of a sudden he's like, you know what I need to do? I need to start reading these wanted posters and I'm going to get out there and do stuff like, wow, they really kicked his adrenaline up. And Logan would rather be doing something else, but he'll tag along. He's, Dude, did you see he actually zipped up his pants? I wouldn't say he was zipping up. He was more like making a, a liberal amount of adjustment oh, on his way Jesus. to meet up with William in the middle of the street. Well, because, you know, he's gotten so much action. But I don't know how he's walking around so proud as a peacock. They're robots and they're available to you. And everyone else there is there for the same reason. They all humped the same robot. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why are you strutting around like you just won a prize? Dude, everyone's had her, literally. <laughs> well, maybe you just don't look anybody in the eye when you're in this world. <laughs> Dude, he's totally adjusting himself like, get a load of this, people. Like, you don't even know what I've been up to. Yeah, we do. We've all been there. Logan and William head out onto the range with a wanted poster in hand. The guy that just caused the scene in the street, he was a $500 bounty. And the guy they're going after is three fifty. So maybe he's a little easier. Maybe they feel like can handle it without host assistance. Yeah. So they head off into the range. We don't meet them again until the very end of the show. But it seems like the excitement finds them. Right. Off in the distance, they hear something. And in Westworld, that could be anything. So <laughs> they get their Guns stand up and check it out, and it is a stumbling, mumbling Dolores. Dun, dun, dun. So let's talk about Dolores and all the adventure she has had this episode. There's some of the interactions she has that we've talked about a little bit, but I'd like to talk about what it was like from her point of view. Right. She intersects Bernie. Teddy, and now William in this episode. Her first meeting is with Bernie. It's one of those clandestine secret meetings doing secret diagnostics. And she reads the Alice in Wonderland, which makes me just draw a dotted line to, is she our Alice in Wonderland now? So she's looking at her world with new eyes. She seems to be. And also, I would say that the theme that comes to mind about Alice in Wonderland is the idea that the girl is so bored and she wants something more, but she gets more than she bargained for. The, the land isn't just like a little bit of a change. It's like mind-blowingly different in Wonderland. Mm. And so I feel like for Dolores, she may be playing with fire. Like she doesn't know where she's going to actually lead when she gets free will. So I'm interested here to see how far she takes that Alice in Wonderland theme. I feel like she is really far in her evolution, but in this conversation with Bernie, she, she plays it yeah. real cool. Right. And and I, I don't know if he knows this or if he doesn't know it. The line that I keyed in on from the passage was changed in the night, which mm. is interesting because everything she, seems every, to happen in the night. Everything seems to happen in the night. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but every time we've seen her wake up or in bed, she starts in bed, pretty much fully dressed with her hair looking perfect, and then her eyes open. The next scene is of her in bed with her eyes already open. Okay, so it's like we didn't see them open? Right. 
And I know that's a teeny tiny detail and I may even be wrong, but I think it's important that that seems to represent another notch. Like I know some people in my life who have trouble sleeping and they just <laughs> lay in bed who all night. Who would that be? My Lord. But here's the thing. If that's the truth, I can tell you as somebody who has a hard time sleeping, the reason why I do is because I'm thinking Right. And my mind is racing. See where I'm going with that? And she's a robot. So if her mind is racing at night, that's crazy. Like what kind of worries and thoughts is she flying around in there? That's not where I was going. I was trying to tell you that you're a robot, Caroline. Oh my God. It's all coming together. Well, will you do me a favor? Make it to where I can eat anything I want and I stay very skinny. We're working on it. That's the kind of robot I want to be. She does wake up. Very super interesting what happens because her mind is starting to glitch a little. You know, when you see these scenes that are definitely like a character point of view type scene, they are seen not exactly through that character's eyes, but more like the narrative that surrounds them at the time. I interpreted Dolores' scenes more like we're seeing what she is seeing through her eyes. Okay, Even give me an example. What are you talking about? When she wakes up, she goes over to her dresser, pulls open the drawer, and unwraps that gun she found in the ground the other night. Which makes sense and seems like it was a consistent flow of the narrative we thought we knew. She wraps it up again, sticks it in the drawer, closes the drawer, and then like a magic trick, opens the drawer again, and presto changeo, the gun isn't there anymore. Okay, so what do we think that is? Do we think it was a memory of the gun being there? Or I know you were mentioning maybe even is she starting to think through a future narrative or is this a past memory? Was Did the gun used to be there and she's remembering it or is she planning on putting the gun there? I think this is a lot like what happens later when she sees herself being shot right. and then it replays. Right. It's almost like this is the same so what is it? Thing. Is it remembering it and then doing something different so it doesn't happen again? Or is it anticipating a future narrative and somehow that messing with you? I'm going to go with remembering something and then seeing it, seeing it different in present tense, I guess. Does it just mean like learning from your mistakes so you don't yeah, play like it out the same way again? But then what's the deal with the gun? So the gun's there, and then the gun's not there. She has some shenanigans with, with Teddy here. And then they wind up going back to the house, and they play out the whole bandits attacking the house thing again. Right. right? I think it might be possible that if Teddy saved them that night, because Teddy was there. Okay. It's possible that she got the gun from the dresser and put it in the habit. Just a guess. I mean, I'm guessing that is what she did, but that's skipping a lot of steps in between. They bothered to play out another iteration of that bandit scene. I mean, we didn't have to see the whole thing, but we did see Teddy riding up with his rifle and all that. And? Th then it just plays out in sound, just gunfire, and then it ends. We, we didn't see what happened. So I'm, it's kind of a big assumption. I'm just thinking that rather than some sort of weird matrix deja vu kind of thing, it is just... Other iterations of the same thing happening, but but her memory is is just kind of playing with her mind and making her think she's seeing it in what she's doing now, but it's not. Okay, so let's let's talk only now about the night that the newcomer is there and she thinks she's got shot in the stomach, mm -hmm. and she touches her belly, and it turns out no, that's not this night. Mm -hmm. And 
and she gets drug off by that bandit, but not before she runs up and sees her father. There was something weird. Was that the night that her father's face looks both like her current father and her before father? I'm nodding my head. Yes, that, that is the time that she glitched. So then when she goes to the hay bale and her hand goes back, I know there's a lot of debate whether or not she grabbed the gun from the bandit's holster and fell back into the haystack and then kind of takes her hand out of the hay and has the gun or Mm -hmm. whether this is the gun that she found hidden. I am of the mind that this is the gun that was in the ground because my thinking is that the reason why that scene plays out where she hears the voice that says kill him and she is capable of pulling the trigger this time, that is because the gun that Teddy was having her use was a Westworld gun that was, I assume, Teddy's and was a part of the narratives and this gun that she found in the dirt was not. Interesting. So it didn't register. It was just like a foreign object not necessarily a trigger maybe you're right maybe as a robot it did not register as a trigger or maybe the other gun doesn't you know whatever think of it like a fingerprint identifier like judge dread's gun sure like (laughs) judge dread's gun i was just gonna say that on the tip of my tongue Mm -hmm. only fires for that person so maybe it only fires for teddy right and then this gun whether it only fires for her or whether this is a gun from either the outside or something freaky about it that she now can fire it i feel like it's got to be that gun but i know there's debate because People have screenshot it and looked at it and compared it to the one in the dirt and said, it's not the same gun. I don't know how it couldn't be, honestly. Here's an interesting, maybe. You never saw this movie. It was a new take on Groundhog Day. It was called Edge of Tomorrow. It was Emily Blunt, which we just saw in SNL, and Tom Cruise. Every day, they would replay the exact same battle. And if they died in the battle... When they woke up, they would have to start that same day over again. Every day, they would get a little further into the battle. And then they would die. But they got to the point where they could run through the entire, you know, skirmish, not even needing to look anymore where they were going to shoot because they had it memorized. Mm -hmm. It's not as obvious as that because we get to see that in real time in that movie. But in this, what if all we get is just these little deja vus show us a previous iteration so maybe she even managed to shoot them one time but she came out in the yard and didn't know that there'd be that other guy there and she got shot in the stomach bang try again that's what i'm assuming is happening 100 percent. i'm assuming that this is just a redo 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 what was supposed to happen was she was just supposed to keep looping yeah and it wasn't she wasn't supposed to learn anything she wasn't supposed to change What she did, she was just supposed to continue to be the bait and the prey, not unlike Teddy. Yeah. But because she she gets tired of getting hurt and she starts to have dreams of her own where she wants to move on and do something bigger and better, she tried to change her ways. The little pyramid that they show between Ford and Bernie when they're talking about Arnold, and it said that the first foundation is to have memories. Mm -hmm. The next one is improvisation. The next one is self-interest. And then the top part, they didn't know, Arnold didn't know yet. I feel like they're going to ultimately, by the end of the series, tell us what that top triangle is. Mm -hmm. And I think that her going through all the steps trying to find ways to save herself, she's at self-interest. She's she the improvisation is saying the different things and and trying to, you know, go see her dad. No, go inside. No, 
go to the bar. No, run over here. You know, all those different things, improvisation. But now she has self-interest. And so she moved up on the pyramid. So now she's doing things that are actually trying to prevent her own death and or rape or injury or anything. It's interesting you bring up the rape. In the first episode, we assumed the man in black raped her. And this was actually kind of worse because it looked like he was using his knife to try to do what he had been doing to the other robots, extracting information through the application of torture, which, you know, we all like Dolores, so we, we would hate to think of that. What do you mean by the application of torture? He pulled I... out a gigantic knife and said, I need to reintroduce myself to you. Like, this is, I did not get the sense that she was going to be raped. I got the sense that he was trying to get more of this maze talk. I don't know about scalping, because we've seen her so often. I don't know. Maybe. I don't think so, though. I don't think it was scalping. I think it was cutting. I don't know. It's the same lady pulls out for Kissy. That's all I'm saying. And he drags her by the hair and everything else. So I have no idea. But one of the things that I thought was especially interesting about Dolores and Man in Black was how come when she shoots the milk bandit, he turns into the Man in Black? Mm. WTF on that. That doesn't exactly fit with the with the replay deja vu thing. This is more like what Maeve was having. It's with... the exact same scenario as Maeve where the warrior turns into Man in Black. Mm-hmm. What is happening? What is that? Is that the whole idea of Arnold? Maybe like the ghost in the shell business of like playing into other parts? Is it possible that somehow Man in Black actually can transform into different people in some form or fashion? How is he doing this? Or is it one of those strange things? Is it possible that what she sees isn't who he is? Like maybe she at first thinks she sees the milk bandit and that's who drags her off, but then she shoots him and then somehow he controls her perception of who she sees? Well, they didn't give us much to go on for that. But um, I can't understand how come both times with Maeve and this scenario, why does the why does a host just in a blink of an eye, turn into Man in Black. What is that? What is Ed Harris doing to us? That's a good, that's a, something we're going to have to keep an eye on because we have, we know we have two awakened um, hosts. One is much further along and the other one is still pretty freaked out about being awakened. Both of them have a flicker in their memory where they will see the man in black instead of what was actually there. I have a question too, saying the awakening part. So Dolores said it to Maeve. Why do you think when they were having that someday conversation up with Teddy, why mm -hmm. do you think she didn't say it to him? Why didn't she wake him up? Her programming tells her that she's been waiting for Teddy this whole time. However long she feels like he's been gone, we only know it's overnight, but <laughs> it may have been years right. that he's gone. That's how things worked back then, or at least in the time period they're depicting. So I wonder if it is just classic, you know, his talk is very lean on commitment. Lean on commitment, huh? So you you think that she doesn't use the phrase on him because... She thinks this relationship isn't going anywhere. I, it's as much as I've got right My now. My Lord. Well, that is the other thing that I'm paying close attention to is why does she turn it off and turn it on? She seemed to be being more human than robot when she was nagging at him about when are they going to go away, whatever. Like she wasn't, she wasn't playing the damsel that he was coming to. She was actually nagging. And being it's, like, you're always saying we're going to go on vacation. It's kind of like, you need to put this delicately. Uh-oh. Say you have a job 
that you do pretty much the same every day. And your expectations are that you do it the same every day. In that process of doing that job, you will inevitably find little hidden breakpoints that can be exploited, that you can maybe squeeze an extra couple of minutes here, an extra couple of minutes there, when no one's going to really care that you were at the smoke break table for 17 minutes rather than 15 minutes or something like that, right? Okay. Bernie later on tells her, stay on your loop, which is to me the same as keep going to work. This though is like one of those two minutes where she's pressing not so far outside of her loop that anyone's going to notice, but she still wants to know if anyone else out there is having these more abstract thoughts like she is. She doesn't want to be alone. I agree with you. And I think it does come down. She doesn't want to be alone, which again makes her that much more human than robot. But poor Teddy's stuck with his atonement issues. So Dolores has a lot going on in this episode for as few scenes as she was really in. We really saw a lot of changes with her and clearly a lot of theories can be played with on really, what is happening with her. I, I don't really know too much of Evan Rachel Wood's previous work. I know that she was basically introduced in a well thought of indie movie about raising young girls that she was actually one of the young girls in the in the movie. But all the intervening stuff, I have no idea who she is and how well she acts. And I've got to tell you, I think she's a pretty darn good actress to bring as much as she is to this. The Southern accent, maybe not so much. But the rest <laughs> of it, though, makes it so that we can read a lot into what she's doing. And I think that's that's really good. Well, I think this is a good time to ask the question that we did in previous episodes. Who's a robot and who's a human? I really think that you're right. Evan Rachel Wood is doing a great job of walking the line with Dolores. She's clearly a robot. We know that. She's one of the hosts. But she's doing a really good job of sometimes being a little more human than really being robot. Let's go back to our character list, though, however, and say who's who. William Logan, we know that they're humans. Yeah. What do we think about Ford? Definitely 100% human, host. Well, I shouldn't use the word host. Robot, artificial intelligence. I'm going with human. You're going to stick with human? Stick with human. What do we think about man in black? I think I've, I think I've originally said rogue host, and I'm going to stick with that. Rogue host. And I went with human, but I do think that this has gotten more complicated with this Arnold part. So I'm not sure if it's possible that he is some sort of embodiment of Arnold. Not going to look like Arnold because they did show a picture of Arnold, but somehow embodiment of him. So in a way, I want to go with the idea that Ed Harris is playing some sort of host, but I feel like it's not a robot. It's a human. It's Arnold. So that's maybe why I'm a little mixed up. What He's like Arnold a little half a, and half. had a son or something and Arnold, he died at the park and the reason was never truthfully given. What mm -hmm. happened to him? Maybe following the maze and doing all this stuff. Perhaps, you know, when Arnold died, he left his portion of the company to his son. So okay. that's why the man in black, if he was human, could have could free reign to do whatever he, he wants. Right. And his goal is to just F it up for everybody. <laughs> Maybe do you think he's he's actually like a... Um... A spoiler. No, have like like enacting revenge in some way for his father's death. I could see that. I mean, I don't know that that would be a fulfilling storyline, but I could see that. I definitely think that there is something more about 
fathers, sons, brothers, something. I definitely think there is. I think that whether you're talking about like God, devil, God, Adam, you know, yin and yang, something, I do think there's something there to that. So if we can't figure out who the counterpart to men, to man in black is, or the counterpart to Ford is, then we just haven't met them yet. Or we're not paying close enough attention. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Bernie. Now I've been saying from the beginning, he just doesn't seem human enough for me. It's a pretty elaborate ruse to make a host go through having to talk on the video phone to his robot wife. But here's what I'd like to say about that. They really delved into this concept of giving backstory and how people will do things even without a backstory. But what if it's possible that they gave Bernie this backstory of having a son that died and that implants this sense of yearning to create artificial intelligence in memory of his son. But it's as fictitious as Teddy needing to constantly be atoning for a sin that he doesn't even know what he did. I guess. But it's just embedded in him, the guilt. And what if the sadness is just embedded in Bernie as part of his host backstory? But I also wonder if going to talk with the wife and us not being able to figure out if they were married or not married or how they spoke to each other or whatever, it made me think again, like, is it possible that this is just that elaborate of a story? Does talking to her, she kept saying things like, well, you need to focus on your work. You need to keep doing your work. What if that is just like part of his story that like redirects him? Like when he starts getting really wrapped up in his like sort of human story, the wife figure says, you, you know what you should do? You should throw all your energy into work. You should go back to work right now, in fact. And I think you should wait. Don't worry about calling me. Not a worry. Just work harder. <laughs> like, doesn't that feel very corporate? You know, if you work for a company that would reset a, a small native massacre every night to replay for possibly nobody, then arranging for your robot scientist to talk on the phone with somebody, that's probably not as big a deal. <laughs> right? I agree. So I feel like I'm still sticking with that Bernie's not, he's not human. I just don't think he is. There was too many comments. I know Cullen, I think it was, asked something about his sleep cycle. Yeah, she was teasing that she didn't care. I'm sorry, when's the last time you asked me about my sleep cycle? Are you just so rude that you don't ask about my sleep cycle? No, humans don't use the word sleep cycle. That's not a thing. We don't talk about sleep cycles. We say, did you have a good night's sleep? Did you have a good rest? Things like that. But you don't always talk about sleep cycles. That's weird. That's robot talk, ball. I guess I should stop talking about sleep cycles to my coworkers. I think you're really being awkward there. So, all right. So, Bernie, I'm sorry. I'm sticking with some version of a host. I don't know what. I don't know what a sitch is, but something. I don't know. It was interesting when Elsie was teasing Stubbs and he said, well, it's, I guess it's not in my backstory, whatever they were going on about. Right. So what do you think about these two birds? We've talked about Elsie and the idea of like, why is she over there kissing Clementine? Is it because she's got some, something back in her, some residue back in there when her and Clementine used to be wives together somewhere? I don't know. I don't know. Does that mean Elsie could potentially be a robot as well? We did see Elsie pee, which is a pretty human need. 
That's true. And I don't, I don't but know. But Stubbs didn't seem to know what the hell she was talking about. Well, she didn't say I need to go pee. She said I'm vectoring. What the hell does that even mean? That is, as far as I know, like changing direction or something. That's some dork talk for you. Well, she's an engineer at least. <laughs> okay, so then, all right, so Elsie and Stubbs. Nothing? You feel nothing? Are they, could they be the HQ version of Teddy and Dolores? Like, yeah, they paired them up. Like you said, you felt some tension there or something. Yeah. But is Stubbs never going to get the girl and she's never going to get the guy? Well, he may be chasing a girl that won't be caught because she likes to kiss girl robots. <laughs> yeah, I did feel a little something between the two of them, mostly Stubbs toward Elsie because he was much nicer to her than than she was to him. So what do you think, though? Robots? I, yeah, no, humans? I think I, I, I'm going to go with human human not me man i think at least one if not both of them have some something there i think it would make sense for you to make security be a robot well he did seem to know the ins and outs of the weapon permissions and and that kind of stuff sure but i mean he's security and he he would know that whether he's a robot or, or a human as head of security he would know that i don't know just even the the idea of just crawling down in that chasm and like hacksawing off the head that seems very the same as when Bernie's like, did you ever know you make a crinkle thing with your eye? Like, it seems so not what a human would do. It seems very like I'm programmed to do this and I say this and I'm just, I'm not always appropriate in the things that I say and do. Like Elsie. Like you said, she's too harsh. She she's is. not always appropriate about what she says and does. She's mooching on the road. Like, what, what does it mean? What does it mean? Is that more human or more robot? I don't know. We have so many questions about this new world, and I'm super excited to keep discovering all new things about Westworld, including on the website. If you guys haven't checked out the Westworld website, Paul had a good time looking around on it. What'd you find? They have this, isn't it discoverwestworld.com? Yeah. Discoverwestworld.com. They have a series of flagged emails that you can read that are reporting on different issues at the park over the past few weeks. They do come from recognizable names. You'll see Stubbs and you'll see Elsie. And they're talking about various things. And there is mention of the cold storage machines, whatever, whatever, you know, makes it cold breaking several weeks ago. So they are creating kind of this meta breaking the fourth wall kind of universe to engage the viewer if you if you want to cuz I think they're going to lay little trivial details in there that you might be interested in. Plus there's map. It's a two-dimensional map of the Westworld HQ and how the the guest subway approaches the the base or I guess it's kind of a base and then how they leave and where Westworld actually is in comparison to where they run Westworld. We saw a cool thing um, and a little tip from Movie Pilot, and it said, if you type, these violent delights have violent ends three times when you're in a chat with a thing called Aiden on Discover Westworld, it comes out with this thing and it says, the same thing that Abernathy said about the prison of your own sins, hell is empty and the devils are here, but there's an added line. It says, Arnold will come for you. Ooh. Oh, shit, right? Does that make Arnold Satan? Who else is coming for you? You don't say God's coming for you, right? 
<laughs> or a good it, person's coming for you. I guess it depends which book of the Bible you're, you're reading at the time. <laughs> well, I look forward to a lot more hidden things like this. Arnold is fascinating. I completely can't wait to hear more about how he is hopping around. I am convinced he is not dead. Not dead. Not dead. Not dead. This was a great episode in that on the on the one hand, it, it seemed to give a lot of unasked answers. And in doing so, then tipped the scale again with so many more questions. So right. We had no idea there was a partner that helped build the park. We or... didn't even know to ask about Arnold. <laughs> exactly. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We look forward to doing episode four. We might be a little late on episode four because we are heading to Washington Depot, Connecticut this weekend to enjoy the Gilmore Girls Fan Fest. I cannot wait. Apparently, the actor who plays Kirk is actually in a store where you can actually adopt an actual cat from him, like Cat Kirk. That's amazing. Jackson will be out in the farmer's market. Andrew will be in the bookstore. You can buy art from Lane. There's so many cool, amazing things that are going to be going on. We're going to take pictures and get it up on our website, dailyreview.com. We'll, we'll also be tweeting continuously over the weekend. We'll try to take videos and photos and let you guys know any sneak peeks that we can get. Michael Asiello, a celebrity news man, will be on, on the scene there running different events with the celebrities and, and the uh, creatives that, that are going to be attending the Fan Fest. So I can't wait to get some Q&A information from those panels. It'll be so fun. So looking forward to coming back with some Luke Steiner coffee in my belly and lots of funny memories. So forgive us for if we don't get our Westworld number four out as quickly as we have gotten these first three out. Look for it next week on iTunes or on our website, dailyreview.com, on Facebook, you can find us or look us up on Twitter. And we'll probably get some of these pictures Caroline's talking about up on Instagram while we're there. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.